Welcome to the Sandy Springs United Methodist Church Podcast, where we bring you weekly sermons that uplift your soul, strengthen your spirit, and praise the Lord. Whatever your reason for listening, we're grateful for you spending your time with us. May God open your heart to love and your ears to hear. Now I invite you to stand for a reading from the Gospel of Luke, chapter 9, verses 28 through 36. Now about eight days after these sayings, Jesus took with him Peter and John and James and went up to the mountain to pray. And while he was praying, the appearance of his face changed and his clothes became dazzling white. Suddenly they saw two men, Moses and Elijah, talking to him. They appeared in glory and were speaking of his departure, which he was about to accomplish at Jerusalem. Now Peter and his companions were weighed down with sleep, but since they had stayed awake, they saw his glory and the two men who stood with him. Just as they were leaving, Peter said to Jesus, Master, it is good for us to be here. Let us make three dwellings, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah, not knowing what he said. While he was saying these things, a cloud came and overshadowed them, and they were terrified as they entered the cloud. Then from the cloud came a voice that said, This is my son, my chosen. Listen to him. When the voice had spoken, Jesus was found alone, and they kept silent, and in those days told no one any of the things they had seen. This is the word of God for the people of God. The 16th Street Baptist Church sits near downtown Birmingham in Alabama. During the heart of the Civil Rights Movement, when Birmingham was getting the nickname Bombingham across the country, marchers and protesters would assemble at the 16th Street Baptist Church, then walk across the street to Kelly Ingram Park, where they demonstrated against segregated public facilities and the exclusion of black men and women from local businesses. That church in particular served as an organizational headquarters for political protests in the city and a symbol for the movement towards justice and equality. It also became a target of whites in Birmingham who resisted such efforts. Many of you no doubt know the story of the 16th Street Baptist Church. It's one of the most infamous among the civil rights movements. In September of 1963, Birmingham faced a federal court order to admit the first black students to three different public schools. It was a tense and a hostile time. On Sunday, September 15th of 1963, that was Youth Day at 16th Street Baptist Church when children and youth planned and led morning worship. Four young black girls, dressed in dazzling white, left their Sunday school class to head downstairs to the basement to prepare for their role in the service. And at 10.22, there was a sound like thunder, and the whole building trembled. A bomber had tunneled under the church basement and placed 19 sticks of dynamite under what turned out to be the girls' restroom. 
The bomb detonated and the rear wall of the church crumbled. Denise McNair, Addie Mae Collins, Cynthia Wesley, and Carol Robertson all died under the collapsed building. Denise was 11 years old. Addie Mae, Cynthia, and Carol were 14. In the weeks after the bombing, the nation mourned the loss of these young women and grasped for meaning in the midst of the tragedy. Some took the bombing as a sign that no one was safe. Insurance companies in Birmingham began canceling commercial policies on black-owned businesses. Civil rights leaders asked the federal government to send in troops to restore order. And for others, the bombing was impetus for new efforts at racial reconciliation. When 8,000 people gathered at the girls' funeral, a tenth of them, 800 of them, were clergy from Birmingham, black and white, making it, according to the Birmingham newspaper, the largest interracial gathering of clergy in the city's history. As mourners looked for the symbol of senseless violence, as they began to pick up the pieces and wonder what happened next, many focused on one of the broken stained glass windows in the church. It was the only window to survive the bombing, and it was the image of Christ on the east wall. But something was missing about this particular stained glass window. Most of the panes were intact, most of the structure was there, but the bomb had blown through the face of Christ. Where there was once the face of Jesus, the blast left only a gaping hole. You can see the image of the window today in the Civil Rights Museum in Birmingham, where other memories and pieces of that tragic event rest. As I reflected this week on the meaning of the story of the transfiguration that was given to us by the lectionary reading today, I wrestled with Luke's words alongside the missing face of Christ in this image. In Luke's story, we're told that Jesus goes up on a mountain to pray, and while he's praying, Luke says, the appearance of his face changed. In the words of an older translation, the fashion of his countenance was altered. What happened to the face of Christ. The transfiguration is a moment that announces Jesus as the Son of God and the Chosen One, and in that moment He reflects the glory of God, and His whole body radiates dazzling light. In the story, Moses and Elijah appear, affirming His place among the prophets and confirming His intimate relationship with the Father. But along with this strange appearance comes a cryptic, a puzzling conversation. Jesus discusses his departure, that is, the gruesome trial and death that await him in Jerusalem. The transfiguration pulls back the curtain so that we see the true nature of the glory of God. 
we see in this scene that God's glory is in Christ, who empties Himself for us. God's holiness in Christ, which takes away our sin. God's beauty in Christ, who hangs naked on the cross. And when we think of God's glory in these terms, the broken window in that Birmingham church begins to take on more and more of the transfigured Christ. But why does the face of Christ change? Because we often shatter it like a broken window. When we bring God our destructiveness, our prejudice, our hatred, our ignorance, our animosity, our unwillingness to love, we bring God everything in our lives that is not glorious, that is not beautiful, that is not dazzling white. We bring God our endless pride, our explosive anger, and just when we expect God to break us, Christ empties Himself instead. The brokenness of the world shatters the face of Christ, but when we look closer, when we take a second glance at the window, we see that light comes through the jagged edges. The face of Christ may be empty, but there is dazzling light that shines through. The thing about faces is you have to get up very, very, very close. You have to be very, very, very personal in order to see a face. The closer you get, the more lines you can see drawn that are weary, tired lines. Some might call them wrinkles. Some might call them experience. Some might call them smile lines. But when you get close to a face, you see more than a person. And when we get close to God, when we watch Jesus' face in this story, we see the same face that looked with favor upon Mary when she became with child. When we come upon this face of Christ, we encounter John the Baptist as he lowers Jesus into the Jordan River, washing over his face after 40 days and 40 nights in the wilderness. When we come close to the face of Christ, we see Jesus who feeds the multitudes with fishes and loaves. And when we come close to the face of Jesus, we see a rich man who approaches him and asks the way for eternal life. And Jesus says the answer is love. When we turn our face to Christ, we see Zacchaeus who is summoned down from his tree and told that he will be eating with Christ today. And when we come close to the face of Christ, we see his face stained with tears as he weeps over his holy city of Jerusalem. Because on another night, on another mountain, Jesus will empty himself. And the facelessness that we now see will be the emptiness that we feel when his face drops. Tears, sweat, celebration, pain, anguish, and love are all there in Christ's face. God is there, unchanging and everlasting, as it was in the beginning, is now, and ever shall be, world without end. Amen. But why does the face of Christ change? 
because we must recognize that the very essence of God's unchanging love is God's willingness to change our minds when our minds are stubborn and when our hearts are hard. When we look into the face of Christ and see that He will endure anything for us, then we can't help but smile. When we look at Christ, when Peter looks at Christ, our response is like Peter's, to say, it is good to be here. Let us build a dwelling place. In other words, this is the place where God lives. Nail it down. We'll make a pilgrimage here. We want to be in the presence of God. We'll sell tickets, and we'll get other people to come experience this place of God. We want to make this an experience for everyone. And when we catch a glimpse of God's glory, there's nothing wrong with wanting to share it with others, but the temptation to make it permanent does not look fully into the face of Christ because we have to go back down on the mountain. In 2006, the U.S. Department of Interior officially designated the 16th Street Baptist Church as a National Historic Landmark. And each year, over 200,000 people visit the church. They make a pilgrimage to see for themselves the history and the hope in Birmingham. Maybe you've been one of those pilgrims. Maybe you've even seen the window. It's important to preserve those moments in history and to tell the truth about our past, our present, and our future together. Because there are events that we cannot afford to forget. But we must also remember that there is no place, no dwelling spot, no tent, no sanctuary, no worship space, no movement that we can build that will ever contain God's holy movement among us. Not a landmark, not a museum, not even a church. So why does the face of Christ change? Because we admit that God is at work in the world, meeting us in the faces of strangers and meeting us in the faces of friends, meeting us in the faces of enemies and meeting us in the faces of companions. Every face that we now see is the face of Christ, inviting us into a deeper relationship. The faces that you may see may be faces of hospitality and welcome, or faces of challenge and prophetic warning, faces of joy and celebration, or faces of pain and anguish. And when you look into one another's face, you have to ask yourself the question, if you see another beloved child of God, do you see one for whom Jesus gave his very life? Do you see the face of Christ in you? The welcome is always there. We will always base our experience of Christ based upon the welcome that we seek. I like to think of the way in which we visit restaurants. I will not go back, I, I was take that back, I will go back to a restaurant if the food is bad or if the service was slow, but I won't go back if I did not receive a welcome, if I didn't feel like I was welcomed in. And I suspect that's the way a lot of people approach churches. The sermon may not have been up to par. Maybe the 
music was a little too loud, a little too soft. Maybe the snacks they served were lukewarm or something like that. But if you were welcomed, you're going to come back. And when we come to this table, it's not a restaurant. It's not a church. This is an invitation of God. And when we approach this table, these simple gifts of bread and wine, this sacrament, we might overlook a couple of mistakes by those serving us communion. We might overlook the spilled cup of our neighbor. But the welcome is right here. This is the face of Christ that we see. It is offered to us without price. And if it offered to us, then surely it must be offered to all. You might not come back because the music was great, the sermon was okay, the praying was good, but you'll come back because you are welcomed by Christ. Because Christ invites to his table all who love him, who earnestly repent of their sin, and seek to live in peace with one another. Thanks be to God. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. You have the opportunity this week to engage in service, not just to be the face of Christ, but to be the hands and feet. If you'd like to sign up for Family Promise, you can do so in the narthex after the service. We encourage you to do that. We invite you to our Ash Wednesday service this Wednesday with dinner at 5.30 in the parlor and the service in the chapel following that at 6.15. If you're planning on coming, it's suggested donation of $5, and please let us know so we can have enough food. And as we continue towards Jerusalem, as we begin our journey towards the cross during Lent, our sermon series over the next six weeks will look at faith like a child, but not in the way that you expect. If you're a parent, then you know that there are certain things that kids say that are universal. I'm bored. I'm tired. I'm hungry. Are we there yet? That will be how we get to Jerusalem together, and I promise it's not going to be therapy for me or for you. We will be looking at Jesus' words as we journey together. As we go out, we carry with us the broken Christ who was blessed and scattered. We go out blessed and scattered into the world to love and to serve. So as you go out to serve and to love, go with this blessing. May the peace of Christ go with you wherever he may send you. May he guide you through the wilderness, protect you through the storm. May he bring you home rejoicing at the wonders he has shown you. May he bring you home rejoicing once again into our arms. May the love of God, the peace of Christ, and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you now and forever. Amen. Thank you for listening to the Sandy Springs United Methodist Church Podcast. We hope that you have found our podcast helpful and hope to be in ministry not only to you, but with you. For more information about Sandy Springs United Methodist Church, please visit www.ssumc.org. Until next time, may God bless you.